you are interested in Dhamma for daily life. So, and, uh, so this is exactly you know, what the Buddha was teaching about. It's really important not to separate your life and your meditation. This is not two different things. When the Buddha talks about bhavana, now that is cultivation of the whole Eightfold Path development, and uh, it refers to what you do in your life. When you work, when you uh, interact with your friends, when you look after family, when you shop, when you uh, check your Insta, when you go shopping. And, uh, all of that has to become part of mental development. You may have heard of the Noble Eightfold Path, one of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha, part of the Four Noble Truths, namely the Fourth Noble Truth, the Noble Eightfold Path, that is eight path factors very comprehensively covering the whole training, the whole procedure towards enlightenment the Buddha has given us. And one of these path factors I'd like to specially mention today is white job, usually translated white livelihood. Basically, that's your job. So your job is actually a crucial part of your Dhamma practice if you're in lay life. And it's really important to choose the job wisely. And I'm happy that I speak to young working adults because you can still design your career a bit. And the way you, how you design your career and in which direction you go and which job exactly, this is a crucial part of your practice in lay life. Because consider now how much of your time and energy will go into the job or is already going in the job. And quite frankly, now I think there is not that much left outside of that. Some yes, but not that much. Meaning, if your job is something which is completely not Dhamma and not practice, it will be almost impossible to recover that in your spare time. So the only way ahead there is making your job and what you do professionally part of your Dhamma practice. This is why the Buddha dedicated one of eight factors of the Eightfold Path to your job. So when you plan your career, now that is part of your meditation, <laughs> quite literally. Uh, the second thing I like to maybe point out, there's another factor in the Noble Eightfold Path which I feel is very important, and that is the third one, usually translated as white speech. However, I prefer to translate it as white communication. Because in your daily life in Singapore in 2023, how much of your communication is by speech and what percentage is by email, tweet, WhatsApp, Insta, uh, and so on. What is your guess? Maybe 80% communication and not by speech. So, an uh, excellent way of practicing in your daily life 
is using the factors of white communication and avoiding what the Buddha pointed out as wrong communication when you are using any of these things. The first is truthfulness, and the second communication that leads to harmony, and the third friendly communication, the polite, easy on the ears, not an angry email. And the last one, uh, meaningful, beneficial, not just pointless. So um, the two little points I like to make today because I think they are very helpful. First of all, your job as your whole life is part of your practice. It's not something you have to get over in the evening and knock off from your work that you can do the practice. If you regard it like that, now the plot is kind of lost already. It has to be integrated. Everything in life, but particularly the job. Secondly, there's so much activity. I see already two people using, what is it, WhatsApp? Are you on WhatsApp? Or what is the one in Singapore? Text message? WhatsApp? WhatsApp, ne? So when you do that, this is part of wide communication and you have to make it part of your practice. Okay, maybe let's go to the Q&A. So the first question is, um, how were you introduced to Buddhism and what were your first impressions on it? Yeah, I mean, that can be a long story now because it's over many years and uh, it doesn't usually happen that uh, suddenly you're introduced and then you know... Uh, okay, that's it, and I want to become a Buddhist monk. And so it's a long internal development and a, a long search. In my case, in a stretching over years. And I was encountering uh, original teachings of the Buddha the first time in school when we had uh, some teachings in religion about the main world religions, including Buddhism. And uh, I had enough power me that I went to the bookshop and bought an anthology in German translation of uh, suttas from the Buddha, the very uh, authentic teachings of the Buddha. Uh, I did read it. I did not dislike it, but it somehow didn't click. It didn't do much. Very interestingly, although I'm now a monk, but at that age, in about 17, uh, I did read it, parts of it, I kind of liked it, but it didn't really hit. And then later, when I was about 22, uh, I visited East Germany, East Berlin, and you had to change you know, your good Deutschmarks into the Eastern German money. And then they tried to spend it in one day because you, know, you can't take it back out. Uh, very difficult to spend money in socialism, is the opposite, like in capitalism where you're lacking money and the shops are full, where you have the money but there's nothing really attractive to, to get for it. So I went to a, a bookshop and I bought another anthology and uh, I started reading it and again it didn't really hit. And uh, later when I was 27 I happened to be in India and I was already doing quite a bit of soul-searching, spiritual search, however you want to name it. 
and I was uh, starting a PhD on Indian corporate culture. And the idea was that I can do my professional life and my spiritual life somehow together in India doing the PhD, but also hanging out in the Himalaya and meditating. Quite uh, idealistic notions. I noticed it can be quite cold in the Himalaya. The foothills in winter is very cold. And I didn't quite know how I was going to survive that. And I was agonizing for two weeks how to do that all. And I finally decided I just stop this PhD and go 100% for the spiritual life without knowing which form that would take. It took me two weeks of agonizing in a hotel room in Allahabad till I uh, managed to drop this PhD. And I sealed it with a bath in the Ganges. As you know, the Ganges is very pure. It's not necessarily very clean. <laughs> there were some corpses floating by, including uh, human corpses. And I closed all body openings as good as I could, and I had a dip to seal that decision. And then I went to a bookshop. I bought the Dhammapada, very famous anthology of verses from the Buddha. And I read it, and it was totally opposite. I'm a Buddhist. That's it. Yeah. So the, the crucial one is that the mind has to be prepared. It's not the quantity of how much you put in there, but it's the quality of the mind when the input comes. Yeah. Maybe this is a very quick answer. Thanks for that, Ajahn. And uh, I also know it's the Dhammapada that inspired you. So we have three Dhammapadas here for maybe the first three people who would like to ask in-person questions. Hopefully you would be similarly inspired uh, as how Ajahn was. Um, so maybe we can start with a question on the floor, uh, but uh, because we have quite a short of time, please uh, keep your question short and also um, keep in mind for others uh, who would like to ask. Uh, we have a question there, yeah? Yep, uh, my question is, um, how do we continue to stay compassionate to the people who are not compassionate to us, especially at the workplace? Uh, yeah. Do we avoid them altogether? Do we continue to show them love? Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, we all struggle with that. And if people treat you badly and they hurt you, it is obviously difficult. One truth you can usually find, people who hurt, hurt. People who hurt others, usually hurting inside. If you win the lottery and go on a big holiday, you're usually not aggressive to people, you're just so happy. If you're over the moon, you don't usually feel like provoking or hurting or harming other beings. If you have a bad migraine going at the same time through an acrimonious divorce and your mother has just been diagnosed with cancer, it's quite easy to be stressed out and say something hurtful. So one good way, in particular as you talked about compassion, Karuna is to look at the pain and the suffering of a person. What do you pay attention to? 
and you can look at what they did in the past that upset you, what they did now, what they're doing now, how harmful it is for you, for others. Or you can decide not to pay much attention to that, but instead you try to look at that person's suffering. And the really difficult ones usually have a lot of suffering. I remember one uh, monk in a monastery I stayed and he was really, really difficult. <laughs> and, and most monks felt like that. Uh, just, just, uh, yeah, just very difficult, you can imagine. And one day I was in the office and a phone call came in. And there was a woman on the phone and she asked she wanted to speak to that monk. So I had a quick look, he wasn't around. So I said, he's just not here. Uh, can I pass on a message? And he said, yeah, please let him know. His mother has called to call back. So when I finally met him next time, I told him that your mother called and asked you to call back. And then he asked me, which mother? <laughs> and I thought, what, what's going on? Which mother? What mother? And his story was that uh, his first mother had a teenage pregnancy with a seaman, which she had a short affair and then she never saw him again. And uh, she didn't feel that she can cope with that. She was very young, still a teenager. But she also didn't want to have an abortion, so she uh, got the baby and then gave it up for adoption. So that's his first mom. But he never really lived with her or didn't really know her. And then the second mom is a family where he got adopted. But this family went through a bad divorce and he ended up staying with his father rather than with the adopted mother. He stayed with the adopted father. And then that father married again and that woman is his third mother. And after I came to know that story, and because I asked him, I was surprised, now, what do you mean, which mother? And after I heard that story, I found it much easier to deal with his difficulties. A lot of it was actually attention-seeking. He also told me that as a baby, he couldn't remember that, but he was told, and he almost died, mostly probably from that shock losing his mother and getting into a new family and a new country being adopted. And uh, as a result of that, he was a desperate attention, attention seeker, but in an unskillful way. And because he was such a pain in the neck, people would usually try to avoid him, which would trigger more attention seeking. Now, once I saw that, it was much easier much easier to forgive, much easier to feel compassion. And so for compassion, you have to look for the suffering in people. And usually you find there's lots of suffering in everyone. And particularly if a Buddhist monk and people open up to you, then you notice the guys who appear in a very happy, very successful office of a lot. When talking about metta, I often give examples. Have metta even to your mother-in-law. Have metta even to your boss. 
because these are in the typical positions which are very difficult. But then after one talk, a person came up to me and he is actually the boss. <laughs> he is, you know, the, uh, has his own company and, uh, and he was pouring his heart out now how tough that is dealing with all these employees and their politics and their tricks and uh, shocking work. And so it's very tough for, for a boss, lots of suffering. And if you talk to a mother-in-law, she will probably tell you as well how much suffering. So I would recommend uh, look a lot at the uh, pain and suffering in people. And that can soften the heart and make it easier to uh, see, to maintain your compassion. Now, the other one is establishing compassion or loving kindness before you get challenged. And so if you do some loving kindness or compassion meditation right early in the morning after waking up, and you have relaxed, you have slept, there's no one to provoke you, it's nice and quiet, cool early in the morning, and then you establish your loving kindness, your compassion, and try to keep it going in the background, and then it's easier. If you start to establish compassion when you're already burning with irritation, then it's much more difficult. Is that helpful? So I do. Thank you. Thanks uh, for asking and also for the response. We go to the online question that we have. Um, it's more on balancing work, ambition, success, wealth, and also balancing Dharma practice. The other one that is similar uh, in flavor is uh, from another questioner. Uh, Hi, Ajahn. I find it hard to cope with the demands of modern world, inflation, work stress, expectations. How can we better cope with the stress? Yeah. Uh, in terms of balancing, I would rather call it the integrating and making it in one whole. Because balancing usually assumes that there's these two different things. Here's my job, here's my meditation, here's my life, and here's my retreat. And then you try to balance it, and, and often it doesn't quite work, you can't balance it. So it has to be one thing together. And um, first of all, you need a job where that is at least uh, possible. Say, if you work in an abattoir and you're the guy in the slaughtering the animals, it's impossible to balance that with Dhamma practice. Now, that is obviously, you know, if, if killing is one's job, or you're in a volunteer to fight in the Ukraine war on whichever side. This kind of thing cannot possibly be balanced with Dhamma practice. It's impossible. And then the task is to change the job. And I'm fully aware that this is not always an easy thing to do, and it may take some time and careful planning, but fortunately it's easier the younger you are and the earlier you are in your career. But it's an absolute necessity. And if you really want to do Dhamma practice, but your job really unavoidably involves, say, killing of living beings, or really lying, or selling drugs and poison or alcohol, 
So even a job like say in a, uh, acting as a uh, how do you call that as, as a waiter or waitress in a bar, the serving alcohol, and you, you cannot combine that with dhamma practice. And then the task is not to really find a different job where one can keep the five precepts as a very minimum. Now, the five precepts are not to intentionally kill any living being, and that includes insects. So working as a pesty, as I call it in Australia, now that is the uh, pest extermination. Uh, Aussies like to use these abbreviations, the pesty. So you, you could not balance that, it's not possible. One needs to find a job which is white livelihood. Now, if we are a gangster or a thief or a burglar, uh, it's not possible to balance this with Dhamma practice. The second precept is not to steal. We need a new job then. Uh, the third job, uh, the third precept, <laughs> Uh, not to commit adultery or other forms of sensual misconduct. If our job is prostitute or pimp, again, you can't really balance it. You have to find a different job. The next one is really tricky. It's truthfulness, and not to lie. And you will have to really look carefully <laughs> to find a job where you can do that. And it's probably quite difficult to find a job where you can do that absolutely 100% all the time. But at least move in a direction with your career to try to get it as pure as possible. This is an important precept. It may not appear like that, but this is already determining your career planning to quite some extent. And number five is not to take alcohol or other drugs that cause the intoxication where we lose our sense of shame and conscience and where we lose our mindfulness and become intoxicated. So green tea, dark chocolate, this is all okay. You don't lose your sense of shame and conscience from even high doses of chocolate or things like that. But um, alcohol, dope, uh, heroin, crystal meth. I, I'm not sure what is on the market nowadays. No, this is all wouldn't work. And uh, selling that, encouraging others to do that, even just advertising. No, if you do advert ads or a marketing campaign for alcohol, even if it's no, the most expensive champagne or 20-year-old whiskey, you, you can't balance it. So this already gives an external framework you know, of, of jobs which we just can't do and where we have to you know, plan our career you know, to move out of that and to move into a job where we can keep the precepts at least. Additionally, I would strongly recommend to have a job where you feel that you have some positive contribution for other beings. It doesn't have to be in a, like a surgeon who is operating and saving five people's life every single day. Or a firefighter who is washing in and you know, risking his life, saving life of other people every single day. It doesn't have to be quite so heroic. You know, even if you're an accountant, 
you work in a bank, even a very uh, humble job like a cleaner or a sweeper or garbage collection, now, these jobs obviously have some benefit for someone. Now, we all have bank accounts, usually, and there's some benefit in that. However, there may be jobs who have quite high status, high reputation, high income, but while doing the job, you may start asking yourself, hmm, is what I'm doing actually maybe rather harmful? Maybe not outright against any of the precepts. Like I remember a friend of mine, the uh, mother was elderly and slowly got a little bit dementia. And they have these marketing calls and they're really targeting these elderly people who feel lonely, they talk to them. And then they are selling them certain products. And then on the telephone, they make a contract where they get sent all these different products. And if they don't send them back within two weeks, then they have bought it. And my friend had a tremendous amount of work trying to stop all these contracts mother had established by talking to people on the phone. So you may be able to do that without breaking off any of the precepts. But in doing that kind of job, you would probably notice that this is quite harmful. On the other hand, if you have a job where you can see that beings benefit from that, then you can really make it part of your Dhamma practice. Now, wholesome intention, the second factor in the Eightfold Path, the white intention. And you can develop that all the time while you're doing your job. And it's a gigantic difference. And the karma is determined by intention. I think you all have heard of karma. You do something and then you get a karmic result. And what karmic result you get from your actions depend on the intention. So two people may be doing virtually the same job and they may be getting totally different karma. And both may be physicians, medical doctors, and one is treating the patient because he gets paid very well. The other person is getting maybe even the same payment, but his intention is not so much getting the money, but helping that sick person. Now, usually it's a combination, anyhow, in your mind, and it's not so clear. But you can make it very deliberate. And when you go out in the morning, you go to your job with the intention of doing something beneficial to other beings. And you will notice you wake up and go to work in a very different mind frame, if that is your intention. Many people they go to their job because they just have to earn the money somehow. I have to pay the bill, the bills, and so I have to put the alarm clock and go to work. And even if I hate it, I have to do it because I have to earn my money. This is very stressful. And the second question, if this is how you live your life, oh, I hate this job, but somehow I have to pay the bills, 
and my only intention now is not to get it over with and then go back in the evening and have a little bit of joy outside of the job, uh, that tends to be very draining, very, very draining. On the other hand, uh, I remember the gentleman who invited me to start Amagibi, who was the president of that association at the time, and they invited me. And he's a very senior neurologist, and he just retired this year because he turned 90. He kept working as a neurologist, and he only reluctantly retired at 90 because he loved his job. I think his favorite would have been to continue working and seeing one patient and then maybe having a heart attack and dying before the next one comes in. I think that would have been his favorite because he loved it. And if you really love what you're doing because you're seeing a, a benefit for other beings, then you can work 12 hours a day, uh, maybe less stressful and less draining than doing eight hours something you hate where you don't see any benefit and you only try to get it over and to get the money to pay your bills. So I would strongly encourage you know, to have a job, you know, even if you earn somewhat less and even if the status is somewhat less, but you actually see a real benefit and you can get out there every day and uh, have the intention to do something that is of benefit you know, to others. And then you work you know, all day with that intention. And that will already reduce the stress level. Thank you for that uh, response, Ajahn. We can perhaps have a question from the floor. Anyone would like to ask Ajahn any questions? Uh, just raise your hand up. There are some burning questions. I'm just a bit shy. Yeah? So. Uh, hello, Ajahn. So I have a question about sometimes our mind are running everywhere here and there, especially during we, are, we need to focus and it's actually frust very frustrating. So I was wondering if you have any suggestion on how we can do in a short term and a long term so that we can always catch the mind back, make it not running anywhere where we need to can, focus. Can you repeat the beginning? I didn't fully get it. Okay, so I'm saying that uh, our mind usually runs everywhere, especially yeah. we yeah. need to focus. So I was thinking uh, if you have any suggestion that we can do maybe in the short term and long term so that we can always catch it back or at least not making it running everywhere when we need to focus. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's definitely a, a long-term thing. It's a long-term thing. And uh, you, you, there's no trick how you can make your mind uh, quickly, short-term, calm and focused. And it requires a long-term uh, integrated procedure namely the Eightfold Path. This is why the Buddha gave the whole Eightfold Path. And you have to use all eight factors. And for example, if you have a job which is quite unwholesome, you have to break the precepts, you are stressed out because you also don't enjoy it, this is already one factor which will make it very difficult 
to make your mind calm than later when you try to focus. If you uh, break precepts in any other way, it creates a huge disturbance. If we live our life with low mindfulness, muddled-minded, it makes it very difficult to focus. So it is really important that we change our normal habits. For example, you can observe what is a mind like after going on a long walk in nature, what is a mind like after playing a computer game all night. There's a big difference. Being in nature, switching off devices, is usually in a very calming. Reconnecting with our physical reality, this is why I did this meditation, by bringing awareness back into the body. Recently, in one monastery in Germany, Motodaya, they had an interesting stupa, which was more like a, a hill, like a mound, and then they had just planted roses on top, and around it was grass. So you could circumambulate, walk around the stupa, walking on grass. And I did that in the morning, when it was still a bit cool and dew and wet, and you walk barefoot. Now, if you do that, and walking on grass, barefoot, in the morning for half an hour, or you check for half an hour your various social media and all the messages. Check out now what is the mind afterwards. And one thing that I would really recommend is reducing screen time. It's not surprising that if we spend uh, 12 hours a day in the behind the screen and whatever goes on on that screen, it will be quite difficult to have a quite and calm mind. If we spend uh, quite a number of hours uh, in nature and uh, doing some physical body-related exercise, uh, tai chi, qigong, yoga, uh, some sports, whether it's jogging or in Singapore maybe in, uh, doing laps in the pool, I think that is quite a good one here in this climate. Now, I know this is not so easy to do exercise in the humidity, but I think swimming may be actually quite a good one. And after half an hour, not playing around in the water, but just doing your laps mindfully with body awareness, that will be much easier. Another one is what we call punya, good karma. It's called punya. And the punya, God karma, is not just something in the future. But whenever we do something good, it has a direct impact on our mind. It uplifts the heart. It makes us feel more happy in a, in a good way. And when we continue doing good actions, you know, this is a little bit like charging a battery. You build up you know, a certain level of punya, of good karma, and that is uh, something very dynamic in your heart, in your mind. And it makes the mind bright and happy, basically. It's very difficult 
to focus the mind if it's inside dark and unpleasant. It's just like you wouldn't want to go into a womb which is really grubby, grimy and dangerous with snakes. <laughs> but if you have a nice, clean, beautiful womb you're quite happy in there. So a very important one is to build up, to charge the mind with a good stock of a good action of good karma. Because then when you focus internally, you encounter brightness and happiness. As the same why we keep precepts. A lot of the mental turmoil comes from Uh, doing unskillful actions, although the relationship may not be so apparent to people. But you can usually notice it and if you meditate regularly and say you, know, you had a big explosion and someone you're quite close to, you had a huge argument, and then a few hours later in the evening you try to meditate, it's, it's usually almost impossible. This big argument is so powerful that when you do the formal meditation, this is a very refined work. In terms of training the mind, it has to start from the coarse and go to the more refined. So if you compare it maybe to um, woodwork, working with wood and producing a beautiful table or a seat, Some can be extremely beautiful, a dhamma seed or a shrine. So now you go into the forest and you find this big lock of wood, a dead tree. So you wouldn't start by taking a polishing cloth and polishing that, that timber. You need a chainsaw to cut it. And then you bring it to the circular saw where they saw it into proper um, boards and then the next thing is the planing it you need a planer to make it really smooth and, and uh, smooth on the surface and then you can start sanding it with the coarse sandpaper then comes the fine sandpaper and once you have done the fine sandpaper then you may uh, apply a proper varnish And then you can polish that. So it's very similar with the mind. And if you find it really, really difficult to focus even for shorter periods, it may be more beneficial to work on the coarser manifestations and the coarser issues, like making good karma, like having a wholesome job by interacting with other beings, with kindness and compassion, by reducing screen time and reducing distractions. You see, uh, we have a problem often in our society with overeating. Uh, certainly in Australia, it seems to be much less in Singapore somehow. I don't see so many uh, obese people as in Australia. But in modern society, there's often a problem with overeating. But there's a limit to physically overeating. 
And maybe you can eat three times as much as you need, or four times, but not more. But there's an even bigger problem with mental overeating. Too much input. And unfortunately, there you can do it much worse. You may have 10 times or 20 times more input than you can actually digest. So if you want your mind to be more calm and to be able to focus more, I would very strongly recommend what the Buddha called sense restraint, which basically means not to have less input. And a lot of the input nowadays is via screens. So if you have WhatsApp, is it really necessary to also have Twitter and Insta? Or can one restrict it to one? And is it really necessary you know, to always comment on all these messages you, you get coming in, or all the uh, latest posts from the people you follow and so on? Is, is that necessary? Is it necessary you know, to uh, surf the web so much to see all these videos? Is it necessary you know, to have all this interaction, all this input? And in general, you know, the mind is actually happier if there's less input. It's a big fallacy that we are being trained you know, by the whole system. You know, they want to sell you things, you know, so they have to convince you that the more you get, the more you experience, the happier you will be. But that's actually the opposite. The mind is much happier you know, if we cut down a little bit turning down the volume level on all the six senses. Is that a little bit helpful or does it make any sense? Great. Hey, thanks, Ajahn. Uh, we'll go to uh, pre-collected pre, uh, questions then. Um, so since we're talking about the mind, we can go to the question on practice. Um, so Ajahn, what is your favorite meditation method or, or practice? And any tips to enter Samadhi? I, I personally like uh, Anapanasati, and the meditation on the in and out breath, mindfulness of the in and out breath. But I would recommend don't worry too much what is my favorite meditation, but find your own favorite meditation. and. Uh, for example, Anapanasati in Dhammagiri is a fairly quiet place. We call it a hermitage. And when I do Anapanasati, I often feel uh, a strong inclination to solitude and seclusion, which is quite good for a Buddhist monk. And I can just be in my kuti, and often there's nothing from after the meal till the next morning, and I don't have to interact with human beings. But if you do Anapanasati in the morning after waking up and you also feel a strong inclination to solitude and seclusion and then you have to face your working day, it may not be so helpful. So uh, whatever my favorite object is, now, it doesn't really matter so much for you and you have to find your own favorite one. And I would suggest uh, a good one is the one which works a meditation object where you find it easy to settle down on and which gives you a wholesome joy and happiness 
and which means you know, that you can live your life more skillfully. And I think often that may be a metta loving kindness as a good one. Uh, another good one is the you know, recollection of the Buddha. You can just repeat the Buddha ho, Buddha ho, Buddha ho. Or you can just think about the Buddha. Or do the whole thing, the Itipiso, Bhagava, Adahang, Sambuddha. Or think of the qualities of the Buddha in a, in a reflective, conceptual way. And uh, one thing I also recommend is something in getting back into the body, some body awareness, and even body sweeping, feeling your body. And this technique, which is called body sweeping, where you go through the body and try to really feel it. These are ones now I would recommend. And it doesn't really so matter so much you know, what uh, the Buddha's favorite meditation object was or this or that monk's. You have to find something that works for you and in, in your situation. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, let's open again the questions to the floor. Um, we are going to end at around 9.45, so maybe we'll take one... Eight, we end 9, 9.45? 8.45, sorry. 8.45. Yeah. <laughs> trying to sneak in another hour from Ajahn. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go a bit longer. We can maybe close the session, but those who have other important issues can do that. Mm -hmm. But if anyone is really feeling it's so important to ask something, I'm happy not to stay a little bit longer just with those people. Thank you, Ajahn. Um, in that case, we, we can take a few more questions. Yeah? Um, any burning questions on the floor? Um, do raise up your hand so we can uh, pass you the mic. Hi Ajahn, thank you so much for travelling all the way here to share teachings with us. My pleasure. Uh, uh, I'd like uh, to my understanding in the developing of the perception of anatta, non-self, we observe the rising and falling of our five aggregates. Mm -hmm. um, I think observing the rising and falling of the, the first four, the form, feeling, uh, Perception, mental volitions is observable. How can I do? Uh, how do we observe the rising and falling of consciousness? Because it seems like when the mindfulness is present, I'm always conscious. So, uh, uh, could you uh, enlighten? Thank you. In a sense, you could say, how could you not observe the rising and falling of consciousness? How could you not observe it? Because consciousness is, is our experience, that, that is what we call the world. That's the world of our conscious experience and constantly rises and falls. We have got eye consciousness, you have got ear consciousness. So you could almost turn it around. Now, how, how could you not observe that consciousness constantly rising and falling because you are in consciousness all the time anyhow, you can't get out of that. And it's just a fact that is constantly rising and falling. However, now I know what you mean, and it's obviously the most uh, subtle of these aggregates. And in general, you see, now, if you try to sit for an hour and watch your breath, or to sit for one hour and uh, repeat Buddha, Buddha, or radiate loving kindness to all beings for one hour, and you find that quite difficult and your mind wanders, 
I think it will be very difficult to watch the arising and passing away of the five khandhas, to be honest. And not only consciousness. I think it will be very difficult to see perception, uh, uh, intention. F feeling is uh, maybe the one of the easier ones, uh, if it's uh, strong feelings. Uh, so uh, if you can sit for an hour and focus on loving kindness to all beings and your mind is uh, just with that, not jumping here and there, the blissful, really focused, and then, then you can probably give it a good go. But if you, after 20 minutes already, it's very, very difficult to focus on something much more obvious and much coarser, like loving kindness, like Buddha, like the experience of breathing, it's very difficult to see the rising and falling of the five khandhas. Yeah, yeah. What you want to do is uh, focusing more on, on the uh, easiest ones. The causes is obviously the body. And that is usually the easiest to observe. And you can use the first foundation of mindfulness, which is about our physical body and the exercises there. Now, for example, the posture and how the posture is changing. And I think that is something which is quite observable and manageable, and even in busy life in Singapore, and if you're not on retreat, you will notice that when you get up, and when you stretch and extend and flex your limbs, that that can be done. You can investigate the four physical elements, how you can feel them in your body, and how they're changing. Or you can reflect on the 32 parts uh, the second foundation of mindfulness, the feeling, uh, that works quite well in the, with painful feeling because that is usually strong enough that you can focus on it. That's one of the great uh, advantages of that meditation object. It's usually uh, not so difficult to stay with it. It's actually difficult to get away from it if you do have pain. But uh, to observe the arising and passing away uh, of uh, perception, uh, thought, and consciousness, uh, you need, quite frankly, I think you need quite a strong basis in samatha to do that very fruitfully. Yeah. And it's already interesting that you say, now, how can I see consciousness arising and passing away? Because how can you not see it? So it's all consciousness. You can't get out of consciousness, isn't it? Because anything we are aware of is, is conscious experience. So that one is already established. And whatever goes on in this whole world is, is consciousness. And the only thing now you have to notice is that it's constantly you know, arising and passing away. And I think it should be possible you know, to notice that. But you may be already needing some level of calm to at least notice that it constantly arises and passes away. A very different exercise would be to do that sufficiently, consistently, long enough that you make progress in terms of seeing that it's not safe. That, that is a much, much higher level of practice. But once you have a very calm mind and you reflect on that and you try to see, you will notice 
you can't get out of consciousness. It's all consciousness you experience. And then the only step is to notice that oh, your opposite is constantly changing and rising and passing. But this is so quick that we very, very hard not to consistently observe that. Now, once your mind has more samadhi, that will be much, uh, much, much slower, and then you can actually see that. It's very difficult to get an uh, idea of what, what is the mind which is somewhat similar to what is consciousness, if a person has never experienced samadhi, because it happens so quickly and there's always, the other factors are always there. You see, the khandas are always coming together, with a very unusual exception of these um, very deep samadhis, which are formless meditations where you don't have rupa, but I mean, setting that aside, no, you always have all five. And it's inevitably, and they're always all together. You can never have only consciousness. When you have consciousness, and you have got the other four khandhas, with this one exception. When you have feeling, you also have consciousness. So this makes it quite difficult to observe, because they always come together. And it's like you know, there's tea in the, in, in, in the water, but they're all together, and the tea and the water is just mixed together, so it's not so easy to tell them apart. The body is a little bit easier. You can tell in a partner, a leg and an arm. They're clearly separate, although connected. And you can go through an anatomy atlas, and you can see, you, know, you can actually, not in a living body, you know, but in a dead body, you can clearly separate or even in a living body, and you have a wisdom tooth being pulled, and you can look at your tooth and separate. We can never do that with consciousness. It's always together with feeling, intention, perception, and usually whoopa as well. So it takes a very strong mindfulness and wisdom to clearly observe that. So I would try in focusing more on the first foundation of mindfulness, and maybe the second one, and then maybe the third foundation of mindfulness is that you notice the, the emotions in the mind. It's already difficult enough not to see emotions arising and passing away. Now I'm very happy, now I'm bored, now I'm excited, now I have some strong desire, I have to eat something, now I'm a little bit depressed. Now watching these emotions arising and falling away in the mind I think that is a much easier exercise than watching the five khandhas arising and passing away. And I would recommend if you want to work with the mind, not with the body and feeling, then use a third foundation of mindfulness and watch the emotions, how the mind is affected by different mind states and emotions. When you do a Buddha puja, and then you have the emotion of faith and devotion coming up, when you watch that, you know, that was the cause. You, know, you are offering something to the Buddha, you do the chanting, you bow, you think about the Buddha, and now the emotion of faith, devotion arises. That is something you can observe. Not so easy, but you know, easier than uh, all five khandhas arising and passing. Yeah. 
Hello, Anjan. Thank you for being here. It's a great joy to My listen pleasure. to your talks. So when I was reading this book that the author writes, I think the author is a monk as well, and I was a bit, I was reading this statement about the all emotions are painful, including joy and happiness. I wanted to ask you, what is your perspective on this statement and whether you believe this statement is true? It is true, and also to my understanding, the Buddha has taught that all emotions are ultimately unsatisfactory. If we say that all emotions are painful, I think that is too misleading. Now, that is a translation into English. In Pali, the term would be dukkha, which can mean painful, but it can also mean not fully satisfactory, not being able to give you total lasting happiness. Because it would obviously be nonsensical to say that when I feel very happy that this is painful. Pain and happiness or pain and pleasure is something different. So the Buddha didn't mean that feeling happy or feeling joyful emotion is painful in the literal English sense. But what he did mean, one of your other seals, even the most happy emotion cannot last forever. And in that sense, it is disappointing. It can't give a total, perfect, forever lasting satisfaction. So this is what is really meant by that. It doesn't mean that it's painful just like a headache. Because if you're happy and you're over the moon, it, it's not like a headache. It feels very good. So, so from what I understand, is it mean attachment to those joyful emotions will cause suffering eventually? Like, for example, my favorite food is chicken rice. And I'm happily eating my chicken rice. I'm having a joyful emotion. Mm -hmm. But... From this statement, it says all emotions are painful, including joy. So when I eat my chicken rice happily, am I going to suffer later? Well, you will suffer if you don't get chicken rice. That, that is the suffering there. The suffering is not so much when you're eating that and you're really enjoying it. The suffering is also that you may not be able to eat that as much as you would like. Because if you eat as much chicken rice as you would like, you may have impacts on your health, you may have impacts on your income even, and it may not be good. So uh, if you want to investigate the attachment and the resulting suffering, you have to look for these kind of things. It doesn't mean that while you're eating it, you're suffering. While you're eating it, it may be quite enjoyable. But there may be in a drawbacks inherently connected with it. And that is what the Buddha refers to there. It is also disappointing in the sense that you can't sustain this emotion. And if you eat the chicken rice, and then I give you another chicken rice, and then another, at some stage it may become quite unpleasant. And even your most favorite food, if someone serves you that exclusively all the time, it may flip into the opposite and you can't see it anymore and it causes you a painful and unpleasant feeling eating that. 
this is how we can reflect on that. So, so I can enjoy eating a chicken rice without getting too attached to my joyful emotions. If you can do that, it's great. Yeah. It's not easy to, to uh, indulge in something, but without being attached to it, you can check that by, uh, if you can't get it, this is when one usually notices the attachment. It's much easier you know, to eat the nice food and then to say, yeah, but I eat it without attachment. But that may be just mental gymnastics. The real test of the matter is you know, if you want some chicken rice, and then you say, why should I eat chicken rice? I decide I just don't eat anything now. And then you will notice the craving. And then you can check whether you attach to it. Good question. Yeah. So once more, when the Buddha said that all emotions are painful, the Pali is not really painful. It just means ultimately disappointing and unable to give us no forever satisfaction. Yeah. Thank you, Ajahn, for that response. And as um, what Ajahn mentioned, all the emotions uh, eventually have an end. Our session also will have to end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we won't take any more questions since it's already nine uh, nine o'clock. Perhaps we could have some um, closing chant or something. I only hope that the session gave you rather pleasant feelings and painful ones. How do we close? By paying respects to Buddha Dhamma Sangha? Or? Um, yeah, we can, we can um, have maybe a, a... You can just lead whatever way you like to close. Um, could we have Leave a, it to you. a blessing chant from you before we close? Like a blessing? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I wish you long life, health, strength, beauty, appreciation, success, and happiness. And most importantly, I wish you smooth, consistent progress in your Dhamma practice until one day you can realize the state of complete freedom, highest happiness, Nibbana. Bahung ve saranang yanti papatani vanani cha aram rokachetyani manasa bayata chita netang ko saranang kemang netang saranamotamang netang saranamagama sapadokapa mochati yoche bodhancha dhammancha sanghancha saranang ato Chattari Arya Satchani Samapanyaya Pasati Dokkang Dokkha Samopadang Dokkha Sachatikamang Aryan Chattangikang Makang Dokkupa Samagaminang Etangko Saranangkemang Etang Saranamuttamang Etang Saranamakam Sapadokapamuchatiti